Dear Father, we do thank you as we watch your grace poured out on Abraham and on Abimelech. We see the importance of walking in truth uh, for both of these men, and uh, we recognize all the more our importance of walking in the truth. Uh, we see that wherever darkness pervades, so corruption and sin pervades as well. And so we do pray that we would always respond to the revelation in your word and in your word alone by which we're able to discern truth. We know that the moment we abandon your truth is the moment we cease to be able to call ourselves a church and we become only a social club. So we do pray that you would hold us fast. We pray that you would uh, lead us by your spirit to impress these truths upon our hearts so that we might grow by them. We do praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. We are meeting a new character this morning. His name is Abimelech. And uh, the episode this morning, though, should sound very familiar to us. In fact, this is where we began with Abraham, was him selling his wife to a local king uh, for the protection of his own life. So we see that uh, Abraham has fallen prey to a decision he made long ago to trust in his flesh to protect him, in this land, rather than to trust wholly on God. Well, as God is about to fulfill his covenant to him to bring about the promised son, God is going to take care of this. Um, and we will see some growth in Abraham, although we recognize that God is not now about to fulfill this covenant to Abraham because Abraham has become deserving of it. But still, because of God's grace, because God has chosen Abraham and God is faithful, even when Abraham is not. Our main point this morning, sin committed in ignorance is still a reproach against God. Abraham did not understand that he was sinning. Man has a responsibility to change his mind to conform to God's word when confronted with truth from God. God will correct Abimelech. Operating outside of truth, especially when one knows truth, often leads to more flagrant sinfulness in thought and deed than the heathen who does not know the truth to begin with. We see Abraham shamed by a pagan king in this episode, and this is simply humiliating. He should be in this land a blessing to this man, and instead this man not only has to forgive Abraham for a sin committed against him, but... Uh, we see Abraham not fearing God when he is claiming that the rest of the land does not fear God. This is, uh, well, this is simply a perplexing episode in the life of Abraham, but we recognize this pattern in our own lives too, in the lives of believers, that often some sins, particularly sins we have a proclivity for, continue to come up and come up and come up again and God slowly deals with them, and he deals with them by revealing his word, by revealing reality to uh, those who would listen to it. So we begin here with uh, the vulnerability of this entire group, Abimelech, Sarah, and Abraham, and then we will see the vindication of all three as well, including the vindication of God in his covenant. We start with another episode of Travel. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Now this mirrors what Abraham did back in Genesis 12.9. Abraham journeyed on, continuing to the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So last time we saw him traveling down into the desert, and then, oh, surprise, nothing's growing down here, so keep going further into Egypt. This time, though, we don't see any famine in the land pushing him in that direction. However, we also have the very significant absence of any message from God or urging from God to move in the first place. Abraham had just met God in Hebron. God had shown him the destruction of Sodom but also told him that within a year he would visit again. And within that year, Sarah would have a child. Well, now he has chosen to move. 
perhaps after witnessing the destruction of Sodom, and we see that Abraham is constantly concerned with protecting his own skin. And so he moves in the opposite direction, away from the Dead Sea or the Jordan Valley. We see him moving down and west. He journeys down towards Kadesh and settles somewhere between Kadesh and Shur. Now, Kadesh was one of the locations where the kings from the east had journeyed. Remember, they came down the, uh, the king's highway on the Jordan side of the Dead Sea. They journeyed around to Kadesh, and they went up into the valley of Sidim. So they had also made that great loop over there. Kadesh is also the location where Israel will send spies into the land to see whether or not the promised land is good, as God had told them it was. And notice Shur as well, over there next to the word settle. Shur is the direction and the location where Hagar had fled when she fled towards Egypt, when she was uh, chased away by Sarai. And so we see that they journey down into that region and they settle there. Now they had put down tent stakes in other places, but this appears to be where they put their tent stakes down. And then from that location, they went back north, not as settlers, but as sojourners. They put their stakes down in Kadesh and Shur, and then they took a trip up to Gerar. They journeyed from there, from Hebron, toward the Negev, down into the desert, and they settled between Kadesh and Shur, and then they sojourned northward in Gerar. When they arrived in Gerar, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Oh boy, he's done this again. Last time in Genesis 12, 11, it came about when he had come near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, see now I know that you are a beautiful woman. Notice for one that he does not predicate this on her beauty this time. This is 25 years later. And although God may have restored her youthfulness and her beauty as she is about to give birth to the promised seed, nothing in the text indicates this. In fact, her beauty is absent from anything in the text. It appears as though God not only waited on a barren woman, but a barren woman past the age of reproduction and past the age of desire by men. He waited until Sarah was nothing in this world so that he could make her everything in his plan. See now I know that you are a beautiful woman. Abraham had said to her 25 years earlier. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with you, with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. Now this is the second time Abraham has done this, and in both cases we recognize the atrocity of what he's doing. But I think in both cases we are more forgiving of Abraham than we are of Lot selling his two daughters for the safety of strangers. These are both very egregious sins. In one, Lot does not uphold the sanctity of life. He does not uphold the sanctity of marriage. These two daughters are betrothed to men, and that, and that culture is as good as married. The commitment has been made, and it, must, it would require a divorce to separate betrothal. And he hands away these daughters from his household. But there is even a case that what Abraham is doing here is even worse, because Sarah has become one flesh with him. Not only is he abandoning the sanctity of life here, he's abandoning the sanctity of marriage. He is not holding it up. And he is abandoning the sanctity of God's covenant as well. Because God has said, through this woman, I will bring the promised seed. And he is handing her off to another man. Abraham is not making friends with anybody here. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. In this case, we also notice 
that the king of Gerar, Abimelech, does not present Abram with any sort of dowry for Sarah. Back in, the, back in Egypt, Pharaoh had presented him with lavish gifts because he presumed this is her brother and she is worthy of a dowry and he would pay that dowry to her next of kin, the brother. In fact, in some cases, the brother was even paid instead of the father. In this case, Abraham was paid, but here, no payment. Only Abimelech takes Sarai into his harem. Pharaoh had taken her as a wife. Here, she just becomes one of many in a harem. Now, the name Abimelech is going to come up again in Genesis 26, and it will come up again 90 years after this episode. It is not the same Abimelech, although it is also in Gerar. The name Abimelech is the compound of Av plus E, meaning my father, and Melech, meaning king. The name has meaning in Hebrew, which is interesting. Many of the other foreign kings we've seen have meaning in foreign tongues, like Pharaoh means king or ruler or governor. Abimelech is apparently a dynasty name. This is the name of the dynasty of these kings of Gerar. It is likely a relative then that Isaac will encounter and also sell his wife off to uh, 90 years later. But in any case, this king in Gerar comes and takes Sarah into his harem. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night. This is not the first time that God will appear to a pagan in a dream. In fact, he will show up to Lamech in a few chapters uh, while Jacob is, um, is, or Laban in a few chapters, while Jacob is seeking to get his wife, uh, his wives, Rachel and Leah, back home to the promised land. He will appear to a baker and a butler in Pharaoh's palace, and he will appear to Pharaoh as well at the end of Genesis. And in every case, he comes as a threat because they have mistreated in some way or another God's chosen people, God's covenant people. And so God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. In other words, you are as good as dead. Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. We have both a cause and a reason here. The cause of his deadness now is because of Sarai, and specifically because he has taken her. And the reason why she became the cause of his death is because she is married. In Genesis 12:3, remember the policy that God gave Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant as he interacted with foreign nations, of which Gerar is one. It says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. Or, better translated, the one who treats you as insignificant, I will bind under a curse. This is what has occurred here to Abimelech. And it is interesting that Abimelech is acting out of ignorance. And he's acting out of ignorance, not just because he was unaware of the situation, but because Abraham had given him false information. Abraham tried to fix his own problems by his own means. And naturally, that resorted to separating himself from God's truth and creating one of his own, something our culture is very familiar with. And it always results in sin. And in this case, notice not just Abraham's own sin, but he is causing others around him to sin as well, and he is causing them to come under judgment. This is not being a blessing in the land, as God had told him to do. In fact, we can trace here the guilt of Abimelech. We see first Abraham hid the truth from him, and then Abimelech committed adultery in ignorance, and then God, God contradicted Abraham's lie with the truth. Notice God's reason. Why? Is he dead because of Sarah? Because she is married. This is exactly what Abraham had hidden from him. God is revealing truth where truth was not present. God warned of judgment on Abimelech. Abimelech is not absolved of guilt because he didn't know this was an affront against God. 
God presents him with that truth, and now Abimelech has the responsibility to act on that truth, something he didn't understand before, he understands now, and now he must change course. In Genesis 20, verse 4, the narrator, Moses, steps in and adds, now Abimelech had not come near her. Not only was he innocent or ignorant in his intentions, but his hands have not even committed an overt sin but still he is as good as dead because of this sin. And so he said, his response, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Now he calls him Adonai, Adonai in the singular, not in the plural. This is simply a term of respect. We don't need to understand from this that Abimelech is somehow a, not a heathen, but a follower of the one true God it still appears that he recognizes that he must respect this God. This God has the power over life and death, the power, as we'll see in a few verses, to close wombs and open them. But notice as well his question to God, will you slay a nation, even though blameless? What had God told him? He said, you, in the singular, are dead because of this sin. And Abimelech understands this as a curse against the entire nation. It is uh, present throughout all of Scripture that the nation beneath a king falls with the king. The king is responsible over these people. Often he is even a, a, uh, a patriarch in this nation, especially in these small city towns. He is most likely the father of most of these people in the region with a harem as large as someone like the king of Gerar might have. This is not as surprising as it might be today to see something like that. But even when we go to other cultures, we notice that most of them are uh, marrying within a larger family. And that's happening here, and he is probably the head of his family. So not only the federal headship, but the seminal headship over this nation. When he falls, those beneath him fall as well. The guilt of a king becomes the guilt of his nation. But notice also, this reflects the very words of Abraham just a few chapters earlier. Far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to slay the righteous or the blameless, the innocent, with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. Abimelech, this pagan king, has an understanding of justice, and not just justice from a human perspective, but justice which is informed by truth, justice which is informed by God's standard. And notice as well here in Genesis 18, 21, just as in Sodom, God said, I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. In Sodom, God did not just declare judgment and then hand down the judgment, but he went to see if those things were so. And here he is meeting Abimelech in a dream and warning him, grace before judgment, that failure to turn and correct his actions is going to result in judgment. Abimelech does defend his actions, not saying that they are correct, but absolving himself of guilt worthy of judgment, at least by a human standard. He says, did he not himself say to me, speaking of Abraham, she is my sister, and here's some new information, she herself said, he is my brother. This wasn't just the testimony of Abraham that he accepted, but the testimony of two that both came to him lying. He had every reason to trust them, and they showed themselves untrustworthy. All of them here dealing with a very trustworthy God are not reflecting his character in their actions in this land. And so Abimelech says, in the integrity of my heart, speaking of his own intentions, he did not intend to commit a sin against God. And the innocence of my hands, he has not yet acted on that uh, that sin which is in his presence. He says, I have done this. 
He has married her. He has not yet consummated the marriage. And as we see here, God himself had protected Abimelech from crossing that line. So God responded. God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart, meaning his intentions, you have done this. God knew and knows already. Abraham did not intend to commit the sin, and yet when he comes to Abraham, he comes bringing judgment. God knew. This isn't new information to God that, Abraham, or that Abimelech had been misled, but that does not absolve him of guilt. God also says, I also kept you from sinning against me. His actions were pure. God kept his hands clean so that he could come and warn him. So that he could protect the promised line as well. Both his intentions and his actions are known by God. He says, therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now notice here, God says, I kept you from sinning not against Sarah, not against Abraham, but against me. This act of adultery is not an affront directly against Abraham and Sarah, but a, a, an affront against God. Marriage is part of God's structure for how the world operates, for how creation functions. God instilled from the very first man and woman the sanctity of marriage. All three of these characters have affronted God by spurning his divine institution of marriage, by treating it as something that can be traded, something that can be looked at lightly. This is a sin against God, and a sin is a failure to meet God's standard. Pay attention to this word sin as we look at Abimelech, because Abimelech understands God's standard and his failure to meet it. He didn't before, but he does now. He responded to the word of God. At this point, we can add to the guilt of Abimelech these two points. God acknowledges Abimelech's faultless intentions, and God informs Abimelech of his own grace protection toward him. But in verse 7, we see that Abimelech is not without the need for restoration. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife. Also note throughout this entire passage, the most frequently used word is wife. This is a very important point to God here. He is to restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. All three of these go together. He's not to restore the man's wife because... Abraham is a prophet. He is to restore the man's wife because of the sanctity of marriage. But because Abraham is a prophet, Abraham will pray for this man and he will live. This is an interesting exchange. Because Abraham could rightly be faulted for this entire episode. And yet restoration is going to depend on his bridging the gap between God and this pagan king. We can see very clearly that Abraham has not somehow become deserving of God's covenant. God didn't say, I'm going to give you a covenant in the future, but you got to work to make yourself worthy of it, and then I'll fulfill it to you. Even here on the eve of fulfillment, we see that Abraham is no more deserving of it. But God is still extremely gracious, and God is still extremely faithful to his own word. And this position of Abraham as a prophet of God, one who speaks on God's behalf, is part of this covenant that he has with God. Israel itself is to be a priestly nation among all the nations. Just as the Levites serve within that nation to represent the nation to God, so the nation of Israel represents the rest of the nations to God. And Abraham stands here as the representative of mankind. So that when Abraham prays to God, despite his own sin, his own failures, this is effective. He stands as a priest between Abimelech and God. Prophets as well, 
serve a function not just to predict the future. This is kind of the simple 21st century definition of a prophet uh, that is not a biblical definition of the prophet. Often, prophets would speak of future events because of their function, not because that was their function. A prophet stood as a prosecuting attorney of sorts for God's covenant. The prophets who, were, who arose in the nation of Israel would speak to Israel, reminding them of God's standard and of their covenant with him. They would speak and tell them of their guilt, of their need to turn back to covenant faithfulness, and then they would speak of God's faithfulness. They would look into the future and see that God will still be faithful to Israel, despite the sin of this nation. In fact, we see the prophet Daniel in chapter 19 of the book of Daniel, praying for the sin of his people, looking forward into the future coming kingdom. This is the same, this is the same kind of prayer that Abraham is being told here, or that Abimelech is being told he needs. Prayer from a prophet for the sin of a nation. God warns Abimelech of the consequences then of continuing in this sin now that he is aware of the truth. God does not tell him, what's done is done, now she's in your harem, I guess you'll have to share her. God says, fix it. You've sinned, stop sinning. Now you know the truth, now you are responsible for it, act on it. But if you do not restore her, know that you, singular, shall surely die. You and all who are yours, speaking of his entire nation. This is God's answer to Abimelech's question, will you destroy a nation, though blameless? His response is, you are not blameless. You are ignorant. Now you're not ignorant. Now you're guilty. How does Abimelech respond then? Does Abimelech run away to another town? Does Abimelech try to hide up in the mountains? Abimelech confesses his sin before his nation. Abimelech arose early in the morning. That sounds a bit like Abraham, just a chapter earlier. Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before God, before the Lord. Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. The truth that had been revealed to him, he shared with those under his care. And in so doing, admitted his own guilt in the matter and all of their guilt. And their response was a good response. The men were greatly frightened. This is not necessarily the best translation. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, the men greatly feared God. This is not necessarily the fear of the Lord that we see, which often uh, indicates faith in the one true God. But fear of the Lord, meaning that they understand his standard, they understand that they have broken it, and they understand that he is powerful enough to destroy them. They have a responsibility to the standard. Abimelech confesses then his sin and rectifies the reproach. The rectification comes in the next half of this chapter. After he confesses his sin to his own people and before God, here he comes to Abraham and he gives Abraham an opportunity to come clean as well. Genesis 20 verse 9, Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? That you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin. We have two different standards here in sin. How have I sinned against you? Abimelech knows how he sinned against God. Abimelech knows how he failed to meet God's standard. 
Abimelech is wondering here, Abraham, what could possibly be your standard? It is different from God's. How have I sinned against you personally? What is your standard that I didn't meet that caused you to do this? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? This sin is a sin against God. The one that God came to him in a dream the night before and warned him about. How have we failed to meet Abraham's standard that he caused us to not know but to break God's standard? Abraham, in this standard, has elevated himself above God, has elevated his own standard above God's. Abimelech says, you have done to me things that ought not to be done, things that fail to meet up to a standard, and whose standard? God's standard. And even this pagan king recognizes that where Abraham failed. And this is humiliating. Sadly, this is often the case, perhaps not often, but frequently the case for believers as well. A believer who separates himself from the word of God, though he knows the word of God, often finds himself in far more flagrant and destructive sin than a heathen. It is a far worse thing to turn from the one true God than to not know him in the first place. Judgment comes, far, judgment comes based on your knowledge and responsibility of the truth and to what degree you have rejected it. One like Abraham, who is a prophet of God, a person who receives direct revelation from God and stands between God and the nations. This one has so much a responsibility to depend on the word of God, and yet he abandoned it and brought other nations into sin. This is humiliating. That reminds us of Genesis 3.13. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. See, at least here the woman was deceived. But in Abraham's case, he was the deceiver. Why had he separated himself from God's truth? This is Abimelech's question. Abimelech said to Abraham, what have you encountered? What did you see? What did you find here that you have done this thing? In other words, give me some evidence for why you took this track, why you took this path. Why does he expect him to have this? Because this is how the God who Abraham serves operates. Even the God who is omniscient and knows all things still goes down to investigate before bringing judgment. God said, I will go down and see if they have done entirely according to this outcry. Abraham did not know the king of Gerar from Adam. Abraham did not know this nation in this city. And look at Abraham's response. Now, mind you, as we get into this, this is a confession. Abraham is confessing to his sin. It is not the kind of confession that we can really be proud of. He hedges his bets in certain areas. He gives excuses. So did Abimelech. Abraham is not a perfected person yet. He has the promise of future perfection. But mind you, Abraham also has not even come under the new covenant yet. The new covenant is what gives people the ability to walk perfectly in God's way. Abraham does not even have the spiritual tools that we have today in the church. He's still responsible to act uprightly. But Abraham said, because I thought. Not because he came down and investigated, not because he saw an instance in which they had acted unjustly. He made it up in his head. This was a fear that he had. And he didn't bother to come check out the evidence. This was prejudice. He said, because I thought, surely, certainly, it's a fair bet. There is no fear of God in this place. Well, Abraham feared these people far more than he feared God. 
because in order to protect his own skin, he spurned God's covenant, God's institution of marriage, the sanctity of life. He developed his own standard. He brought this to the nation at Gerar. And then he has the gall to say, I figured you guys didn't really fear God here. What was Abimelech's response when God told him of his standard and the judgment? They greatly feared God. He thought, they will kill me because of my wife. This implicitly says he does not believe God is able to keep his promise and his covenant. Because the promise of this covenant depends on both Abraham and Sarah to be alive at its very base. God will and does protect them, but he he put his life into his own hands instead. And he caused everybody related to this issue to become sinners against God. In verse 12, he says, besides or moreover, she actually is my sister. This is a bit of an excuse. And in fact, we see in this instant that once again, Abraham has imposed his own standard over God's because the bond of his marriage with Sarah overrides her nature as a child of Terah. We can recognize this in Genesis 12, 1 through 2, when God tells Abraham to go forth from your father's house. Lot is counted in his father's house, but Sarah is not. He is not supposed to separate from Sarah because she is no longer her father's daughter. She is his wife and they have become one flesh. And so he has a poor estimation of who Sarah is. Sarah is not first the daughter of his father and not the daughter of his mother. She is first his wife. He says, she became my wife. Then he says, it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house. This is a bit of an accusation. However, it is mitigated in the text. That means it is not emphasized in any way. And so we don't want to hang too much on this. It doesn't appear by the text that Abraham is pointing at God and saying, you know, you made me do this. But this is a temporal clause, meaning it's giving background to the actual statements that he's trying to make. So although he does implicate God as the one who caused him to wander, God also did give him all the provisions and means that he needed to do this wandering in his promise. And his promise was sufficient. But he says, when God told him, when God caused him to leave Ur of the Chaldees, to leave Haran, to head into the land of Canaan, to settle in Shechem, in all of these instances, rather than trusting God to keep him, to protect him, to bring about his promise and his covenant, he told to his wife, this is the kindness which you will show me. This is not, uh, he's not able to define kindness very well here. But he says, everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Now, a lot of critical uh, commentaries from higher criticism will try to merge these two accounts, Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, and say they're traditions of the same event because they can't imagine that Abraham would do this twice. I'm surprised we don't see this more in the text because his policy was that everywhere we go, every single place we go in this land, because it is a godless land, we're to act on this policy. I'm your brother, you're my sister. That means when they're traveling from Haran down to Shechem, when they're traveling from Shechem down to Bethel and Ai, when they're traveling down to the Negev, when they travel into Egypt, it's only in Egypt that this caused a problem. In other places, they had done this and it worked okay. And then for 25 more years, they operate on this policy but it gets them in trouble when they go down to Gerar. This helps us better understand what's going on because this is also something that we do in our own lives. I can tell this little white lie here. I can lie about this on my tax forms. I can lie about this. I can lie about that. 
And it's only in the instances that we get caught that we think, oh, that, that might have been a mistake. And we let the rest of it pass by. Say, oh, that wasn't that bad. Or I needed to do that because they would have made the wrong decision otherwise. That's the worst one. I hear that too much. God's reality coheres with truth. And when you have to separate from truth, you're separating from God. This is a problem because now, now your flesh and your flesh alone will hold you up. And it's a pretty weak support. But Abimelech accepts Abraham's confession. He does admit guilt. In fact, he admits guilt beyond even the scale that he needed to. Not only does he say, yes, I did this, but he says, yes, I actually do this everywhere I go. Again, it's not a very good confession. But just like Adam and Eve in the garden, though they point to other causes, at the end of it, they recognize, yes, we did this. Doesn't really matter how we struggle to get to the truth of our confession. What matters is that we get there, and in the end, we should look back and say, God was right through all of it. Don't remember where it's written in the Bible, but it says, Let God be true and all men be liars. Genesis 20 14, Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham. The last thing he took was Sarah. And now he is restoring his wife, Sarah, to him. And not only that, but he's giving him sheep and oxen, male, male and female servants. This is not a dowry. This is repayment for what had been taken from Abraham. Regardless of Abraham's role in the matter. In fact, we see that Abimelech understands his own guilt and understands that it's not excused by Abraham's guilt in the matter. But he makes full repayment as if Abraham were guiltless and he were the guilty party. This is, this reminds me of a, a, a story that I heard another pastor use. He said uh, when he was little, his pastor used to use this illustration that uh, he would pray and pray and pray for God to give him a bike, pray and pray and pray some more for God to give him a bike, and God never gave him a bike, and then he finally realized prayer doesn't work that way. So he went to his neighbor's house, stole his friend's bike, and then prayed for forgiveness. Abimelech had a responsibility to restore what did not and could not belong to him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. Now in Egypt, he was summarily dismissed, shamed and scorned, and sent packing. But here, very interestingly, Abimelech says, Make this your home. There are many reasons this might have been. I think one very good one is, this man is a prophet from God. Abimelech, having respect now for Abraham's God, recognizes the benefit of having one who speaks on behalf of this very powerful God living in his midst. Abimelech is willing to forgive Abraham because of Abraham's God. Sarah, or to Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Now this does sound like a lot, and it's probably a lot more than you even realize. When Abraham buys a cave in Machpelah for Sarah to bury her there, he pays 400 pieces of silver for that. And that is also recognized as an extremely exorbitant amount for such a small plot of land. In fact, when Jacob buys a plot of land in Shechem, he pays 100 shekels. To purchase a slave is 20 shekels. To purchase a bride is 50 shekels. The monthly wage of an average person at this time was half a shekel per month. This is 217 years' salary paid from the king of Gerar 
to Abram, notice your brother, not your husband. Abimelech, too, avoids the appearance of guilt. But he says, behold, it is your vindication, your covering, your atonement before all who are with you and before all men. When others look at you, they will have no right to accuse you because she has been fully vindicated by the offended party and you are cleared. Sarah is going to be the object of scorn in the next chapter by uh, Hagar's son. His name isn't used in that passage. He's just called Hagar's son, very dismissive of him. But he scorns Sarai in that next one because she's an old lady nursing a baby. Sarah will be the object of scorn at one point, but she will not be the object of scorn because of her sin. Because God has covered it. And here, this king as well has forgiven it to the degree that she has evidence. If anyone would point her and accuse her, this king has forgiven me and he has given me his riches. And then in verse 17, Abraham prayed to God. Now these, uh, or this and the uh, last time, these are the first two times in scripture where we actually see the verb for praying. This is a very significant thing that prayer comes in the context of God's prophet. Of the person through whom God speaks, he also speaks back to God. This is a fellowship arrangement between the prophet of God and God. It is not just a one-way stream. So Abraham, the priest, the prophet of God, prays to God, and God heals Abimelech and his wife. This is not Sarah. He had a different wife. And his maids, of whom Sarah had become one, so that they bore children. Now this, to us, is new information as well. We didn't know earlier in the story that nobody in Gerar was bearing children. Oddly enough, this is the very um, predicament that Sarah has found herself in her entire life, being barren. This is the very problem that God has promised to restore through his covenant. And in spurning the covenant, God extends this barrenness to the entire nation of Gerar. We don't know how they knew this. We can assume there was a bit of time spent sojourning in Gerar through which this was able to be understood. It doesn't take more than just a couple of weeks, a bit more than a month to realize uh, that none of these women are able to bear children. But Abimelech, his wives, his maids were healed from this closing of the wombs that God had done in this nation. In verse 18, 4, giving the reason, the Lord, Yahweh, had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now here we see the all-powerful God, creator of heaven and earth, Elohim, healing. And we see here Yahweh, the covenant God in relationship with Abraham and Sarah, protecting his covenant. Now here, Sarah has seen that God is able not only to close the wombs of every single woman in a nation so that a nation would die in a single generation without turning to God. She's also seen that he is able to open the wombs of every single one of these women. Going all the way back to the beginning of our story with Abraham and Sarah, we see Sarah was barren. She had no children. At the age of, well, whatever age she was here in 1130, it was prior to her being 65 when they first entered Shechem. This was probably somewhere in her 40s or 50s where she's first recognized in the text to be barren, incapable of having children physically. Then we recognize that she gets too old to have kids. Her reproductive system stops working altogether. 
Then we realize that she has become so old that her beauty may have even faded from it. Now she lives to be 137. And so the scale for aging is a bit different, but honestly not that much different from ours. 137 isn't a, an extremely ridiculous age since people in our day and age will still live to be 120, 125. We recognize that it is a very old age, but this isn't that much past that considering Noah lived to be 900 and 900. Adam lived to be 930. Even some of the younger ones, Shem lived into his 600s. Shem had only recently died before Abraham was born. She was aging only a little slower than we age today. And at 90 years old, she was recognized as being pretty old, unable to bear children, and yet God is going to do something miraculous. In fact, in the very next verse in Genesis 21, we will see God fulfill his promise to Abraham and Sarah and bring about the promised seed, Isaac. Our main point this morning then, Sin committed in ignorance is still a reproach against God. Man has a responsibility to change his mind to conform to God's word and when confronted with truth from God. Operating outside of truth, especially when one knows truth, often leads to more flagrant sinfulness, both in thought and deed, than the heathen who does not know the truth to begin with. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you are so gracious and merciful towards us. We thank you that you have installed uh, in your Son the provision that we need uh, to await the coming glory where we will be perfected in Christ. We thank you that we stand positionally in him so that, you, or so that the accuser cannot bring any accusation against us. We thank you that God, Jesus, in human flesh, stands today as our intercessor, as our uh, priest who is able to pray to you day and night at your right hand to forgive us or, or to uh, excuse our sins because he has already paid for them. So we do praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.